This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us on another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk with Team Cymru. I'm your host, Dave Monier, Chief Evangelist. Today, we're having our guest, Andrew Cormack, who is one of the folks in the world who has successfully bridged the fields between technical work and policy work. Uh, And he's here to talk to us today about his experiences with risk, policy, and cybersecurity. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Excellent. So, Andrew, why don't we get started by introducing yourself, maybe tell us some about your experiences. Okay. Well, I work for JISC. We run the research and education network in the UK, so we connect all universities, colleges, and schools' regional networks. So if you count them carefully, somewhere around 18 million users. So we're a big national, very high-speed network. I joined actually way back last century, 1999, to run the incident response team. And in those days, I was a a moderate techie. I got involved gradually more in policy regulatory human side, a bit around how do we encourage people to do security right, how do we motivate organizations to start with to do incident response, but then to try and do incident prevention as well. Got more into trying to help the overlap between security incident response and regulation. So improving some early laws around which would have caused problems for system administrators, uh, mostly on evidence gathering where the material itself was illegal. So got that one fixed, which is amazing. And then gradually the company said, can you do the policy stuff? Would you like any training? How about a law degree? Which really wasn't where I expected to go as a mathematician and techie, but okay, did that, enjoyed it. They said, what would you like to do now? And I said, how about another law degree? Uh, Because the original one didn't actually cover anything related to IT. It was a a general law degree. So I I am now a, a law graduate twice over. But looking much more around this space of where regulation and technology overlap, not just in incident response, but also in the the other services that we offer as a a research network and a technology provider to universities, colleges, a little bit schools. Excellent. So having come from a practitioner background and having, you know, rolled up your sleeves before and pushed around bits and bytes and whatnot. What has surprised you about policymakers, like in particular, how they see risk and how they understand cybersecurity? I think certainly when I was introduced to European legislators and policymakers, I was very pleasantly surprised by how well they understood what we needed to do. That since I think the first meeting was around about 2009, and they came to a TFCSIRT meeting, the the European CSIRT task force, and said, what do you need from data protection law? And what space do you need to be able to do your stuff? And I I guess I spent a year trying to write a completely generic incident response process. That didn't work. But fortunately, they'd gone away and written something that said, well, incident response is important for privacy, which is a message that I keep banging away at, reducing risk to individuals is key to reducing nearly every other kind of risk. And that doing incident response does involve processing personal data, but it can be done in a way that 
ensures that it delivers more benefit than the risk it creates. And that's a fantastically rich framework that I've been working on and presenting in everything from presentations, blog posts, law journal papers for the last 12, 13 years or so. Wow. A lot of times people kind of uh, make fun of the policy side, uh, often seen as, you know, people who don't get it, if you will, you know, the technical realities of things, they just go out and, you know, pontificate, write down ideas, and then everybody has to live under these rules that they just didn't really think out. But it sounds like, at least in your case, you didn't have that experience. They actually came and said, this is something new and we're trying to get helpful. So that's always good. You know, it's like uh, the surprise good news story. But were there any instances like where they lived up to that reputation where you were like, no, you guys just don't get it? Have you seen any like worse than expected or I should say as bad as expected experiences as you moved into that? There are a few where a single idea has kind of grabbed somebody and they, they don't want to listen to any of the issues around it. Actually, what frustrates me is more the technical community saying the law doesn't let us do this. And I'm afraid I spend a lot of time turning around and saying, have you actually tried? Don't obsess about how do we avoid the law. Spend a bit of time saying, can we actually do what we need firmly within it? Because if you want to build confidence in what you're doing, what better way is there than that? Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair argument. So do you think as practitioners, security practitioners in particular, do you think that their view of risk is the same as, say, the policy people's perspective? Or is there a difference in the two risks? Like, do you think one is too technical and one is too human? You know, if they were Venn diagrams, how much would you say they overlap? I think there's a lot of different risks that come into play because there's the risk to individuals. As you say, there's the technical risk. There's risk to organizations. And actually, at some level, there's a risk to society, you know, this ICT stuff is becoming key to how we live as a society, particularly in the last two years in lockdown. And so the idea that people are confident using it and willing to see it as just something normal and not scary, and you don't, you need to be careful, but you don't need to obsess about it. I think that's really important. So very often, there should be a, an overlap at the middle of the Venn diagram where all those four align. Maybe not in simultaneously, but there was an example here in England. I'm actually in Wales, not here. A few years back where the Department of Health announced that they were going to take all the data from individual doctors and use that for developing health policy and research and everything. And that was fine, but a number of people looked at the safeguards and concluded there weren't any. And in particular, the default was that data would be taken. It was really quite hard to say, no, not mine. And what happened then was, well, people started, individual patients started saying, I'm not going to talk to my doctor in that case because the information might get passed on. So the doctors started worrying that their function was going to be damaged. Here's a risk to my provision of health information and my patients' parents. And the doctors then started with saying publicly that they were going to withdraw from this central system. The problem is this has now destroyed trust in any kind of central sharing of health data for, it's getting on for a decade now. So what damage has that done to health research, to provision of health service, just from a misunderstanding of the risk to individuals to start with. So there's this cascades with different kinds of risk, which I think is probably more common than we realize. 
Yeah. So the doctors themselves said, our patients are concerned enough that they're not coming to see us. Uh And they at least had the wherewithal to side with the patient. So it's, and that's the oath they take, right? I assume doctors in the UK take a similar, you know, do no harm type of oath. So that's interesting that they recognized it, you know, early enough on to say, uh, you're making it to where people won't come see us. So we're not going to use your service. That's interesting. I wonder if that has happened in any other industries as we've kind of moved towards digitization of everything. I think it does. I mean, if you look at a lot of what uh, the likes of Shoshana Zuboff call um, surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's exactly that. And that's it, somebody yeah. saying, you know, there's a risk to my business from the fact that everything's going digital, therefore I won't get any money, therefore I have to find a money source. You create a risk, at least a significant processing of individuals' data that wasn't happening before. And eventually there's pushback. So people are running ad blockers, they're running script blockers, Browser vendors are now starting to say, wait a minute, it's better for our reputation if we limit this onward flow of information. And a few years down the line, the industry that thought it was protecting itself against risk has actually created a risk of complete withdrawal that nobody wants to touch them anymore. Right. Yeah, very interesting. You know, as we move, as society, as we move into the future, it's interesting how these situations have been manifesting themselves. And it's like we can see icebergs clearly in our rearview mirror, but not <laughs> out, not out in front of us somehow. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very interesting. So you're one of those people who has kind of gone from not having an interest in this kind of stuff. And now you are swimming in it, right? And you have actual expertise and, and all that. How has your view of risk changed as you went from being a technologist and practitioner, you know, like you said, you were root on systems. How has your perception of risk changed as you have moved from kind of that bits and bytes view to a more strategic view? I think very much the classic security is confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And when I was root, confidentiality was everything. Things not happening is good is you know, the, the technical security, or a paraphrase, mm-hmm, sure. technical security mantra. And realizing that actually availability is almost more important because if people can't get the information they need or they can't get the service they need, they will actually fix that problem for themselves in ways that probably make the confidentiality problem worse. So if I can't get the data on the secure file store in the big concrete cloud data center, I'll take a copy and put it under my desk. And that might be an availability win, but it's a big time confidentiality loss and indeed integrity because I've now got two copies that I have to align somewhere. So I hope I now take a much more holistic view. It also means I'm a lot less tolerant of organizations that leave security to the techies. Because I know I was one of those and I know where the skeletons are and what I would do without that awareness that the other stuff matters too. Sure. So in that vein, what advice do you have for other folks out there in the world who are advising policymakers? Because, you know, there's all kinds of forums, working groups. I mean, there's a million different ways to where technologists find themselves uh, needing to affect policy. So for those folks that are out there, what, what advice do you have for them? I think I'd start with don't say no and don't say can't. Try and understand what 
others are trying to achieve and start from the point of view of, I can help you achieve that more effectively or with less side effects or something, rather than just say that won't work. Very much, and this is something that, thanks to where I work, is almost a given to me, try to make it apparent that you are coming in as a helpful expert, not as a lobbyist with a particular point of view that somebody is paying you to present, because hopefully the interested expert will get a better hearing and there won't be quite as much suspicion as to what the ulterior motives are. And I wondered, actually, having thought about this talk, whether that idea of multiple risks might be a way both internally to try and understand, okay, this person isn't looking at the same risk as I am. What risk are they looking at? And can we somehow connect those and say, okay, my risk does matter to you. Your risk does matter to me. Let's work together to try and reduce both. Would you say that the drivers from the policy perspective, they're typically of the human variety as opposed to the technical variety? Is that uh, fair? Or would you say that they do share at least kind of technical concerns? And what I'm thinking of, by the way, is kind of at least here, a lot of the policy discussions in particular at the legislative layer are around privacy here in the United States. And that's what we have a lot of, we're getting a lot of this momentum, right? You guys had the, in well, formerly law affecting you, the GDPR. It still uh, does. <laughs> yeah, it still does. But, uh, but less, so hopefully slightly less, right? I really like GDPR. Yeah, I, for, for instant response, I think it's a is it a fantastic thing. Yeah, I'm um, not against it either. I think it's fun to pick on it, but I don't actually hmm. have any problem with it either. Okay, good. But we're starting to get that here, right? California and yes, and uh, started with their own. A few of other states are proposing legislation. Florida, the state I happen to live in, uh, is talking about uh, doing kind of similar things. In their case, funny enough, protecting totally different assets than what the California side are interested in. And that's what drives my question, right, is from a policymaker's perspective, how much of this stuff is like technical, tactical interest versus like lofty, you know, public interest? I doubt there's much technical risk. There is a bit, we have some, both in the UK and Europe, laws around protecting critical infrastructures, and Mm -hmm. those are at the technical level. So that does say that there's one just come in, which I, I love, actually says, do patches. Uh, it, it's. I think it's currently being proofread. But for a law to say, have a risk-based patch management process, it's brilliant. But yeah. for the financial sector, so it's picking on the societally important things like finance, like water, fuel, things like that. So I think there's a few technical issues, but they tend to be linked up to these big societal questions that one day will get people elected or not if they go horribly pear-shaped. I think there's quite a bit that is commercially driven because business and economy are important. And there's a perception, I think, sometimes that risk or going overboard to legislate to prevent risk can actually make life harder for business. I take that to a certain extent, but then at some point, it comes back to this trust thing that if you take away all the protections and create a lot of risk, then people won't want to engage with that business at all. And you've actually created a bigger business risk than you had to start with. So I think legislators come in from all sorts of different places. They're people, they have constituents, reasonably enough, they they have particular interests and particular expertise. So 
I think there is a possibility of trying to find common ground where we can align the risks that we are concerned about, even if they're not the same ones, but suggest how they might be linked, connected, how your concerns might be associated to my concerns, even if they, we have to say, well, they're not quite the same thing. Sure. It's interesting. It's like tomato, tomato, right? Uh, yeah. The un- at the end, it's, you know, we still are talking about the same thing. So what's an example, and this is, you know, I'm not asking you to name anybody here, but having a technical background and you kind of, like a, like you described, you know, kind of go into this new whole area of the world as far as your experiences go. What's an example of the craziest policy proposal you've seen? Like, have you seen anybody just go out and be like, we're going to read everybody's email or, you know, or, you know, no one can look at anyone's email or, I mean, hey, you know, what's some of the crazy stuff you've seen people propose? There certainly is. There have been proposals that have effectively been the ability to read everybody's email. Some of them have got rather a long way, unfortunately. I think that's possibly the worst area. I mean, there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's legislation that, you know, changed the internet. That's not how it works. It's a network of networks. And each of those networks is a network of networks. And each of those connects lots of people. And there is no big red button to turn it off or change it or a dial to make it behave differently. And there are some proposals that assume there is. Some of those have got scarily far. Most of them get headed off or run into some practical barrier, like cost. sometimes cost of implementation. There was one on um, copyright enforcement, which eventually sank because the Treasury just saw money disappearing and couldn't see any chance of it coming back. Sure. Uh, so um, that one died. But, um, so for those kind of lofty proposals, is it, at least in your country, is it typical for those folks to enlist technical people to come in as advisors? Like, were there people technically involved early on that said, this is a good idea? Or is it usually a policy person and then much later, somebody comes along and says, we can't do this for less than, you know, a bazillion dollars, something like that? I fear with us, technology gets called on quite late. I think there may be a perspective, and again, there have certainly been proposals that reflected this, that, well, I have the internet at home, therefore I know how it works. And sorry, you don't. (laughs) There's, There's more to it than... 30 million houses with a couple of big screens and a, a little glowing blue box on the windowsill. It's a um, series of tubes, as mm-hmm. a famous American politician once said. Yep. That, that's what made him famous, by the way, that, mm-hmm. and on a bridge that didn't go anywhere, supposedly. But anyway, so if you had a message that you could send back in time to yourself, you know, from now back to when you first were offered the opportunity to start to advise policymakers and things like that, what would that advice be? I hope it would be what I followed anyway, which was, I suppose, give people a chance that they are at least well-intentioned. They may be differently intentioned, but actually there are some very clueful people out there. And as a result of that, over the past 20 years, we've gone from a world where particularly incident detection and log files and all of that was seen as really scary because that's a lot of data to a point where privacy regulators and not security regulators, privacy regulators are saying, you must do incident detection and response. Here is the CERT CC model. It's very nearly cited. 
uh, four pies, uh, prepare, detect, um, contain, mitigate. And there is even a European law that mentions TLP, traffic light protocol. So I think by that willing engagement, which I hope I've been part of, and okay, you know, you are, you said a different part of the world. I tend to say a different planet. You know, we're from different planets, okay. but you know, maybe it's worth us talking together and maybe we can do things that we couldn't do any other way. And that's incredibly satisfying when it works. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Andrew, I've watched you uh, do your work over, I guess I've known you almost two decades now, funny enough, mm -hmm. uh, how time flies. Uh, so it, personally, it's been very interesting to see you make that transition. I always appreciate uh, when you give us the updates. For the folks listening, Andrew and I are both members of a trust group called the Task Force CERT. And uh, so our his organization and my organization sends us to these meetings. I guess it's quarterly, give or take. And so I've had the opportunity to have to hear Andrew come back and let uh, the entire community know what type of legislation was coming. And and he, when they send out requests for comments and things like that, Andrew actually goes out and gets them. So it's been interesting to see someone actually ride the horse, if you will. So Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. Any uh, closing thoughts? Like, What are you up to these days? And how are things? I think there's... I'm finding a whole new slew of legislation that I can look at and look for guidance in. I think it's been fairly quiet on the legislative front for a few years, but we suddenly seem to have a surge of it again. So there's some really interesting ideas on information sharing, again, coming out of the European Commission. They write it in legislative form. I can turn it round and turn it into, I hope, both stuff that keeps lawyers happy and stuff that incident responders can actually use. I mentioned the, the risk-based vulnerability management, which is, again, coming out of privacy law, a couple of new cases in the last year or so. I've just submitted a paper on that. And there's also interest in what tends to get called AI, but never mind. But I that seems to be quite relevant to what we might want to do around automating both the defenses of networks and how we just operate networks um, in respect to the threats. So when is it okay to hand over to a black box, make DDoS attacks go away? What wrapper do you need around the black box to know that or to have some confidence that that isn't going to go horribly wrong and a, a bad guy isn't going to turn the black box against you, which has happened? So lots of interesting new ideas around that to try and work up into, I say, I hope very much practical advice and frameworks for people to think about how we move forward in security and incident response and, and wider fields. Excellent. Well, thank you. Andrew, how do people get a hold of you if they wanted to uh, follow your publications and posts and whatnot? Uh, what's, how do people find you? The, the shortest reference is probably Twitter, where I am Janet, which is the name of the network, underscore leg for legal reg for regulatory so at janet underscore leg reg and that the profile there has a, a link to my blog and pretty much everything i write is um, published through one or other or both of those excellent well, thanks so much for taking time out uh, to chat with folks. Like I said, you know, we uh, appreciate your experiences, and I think it's uh, good for folks to hear how these things happen, how policy happens, and what role risk plays in those things. So thanks so much uh, for joining us, folks out there. I hope you enjoyed the show. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.